Welcome to Live in America's Town Hall, live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Tanea Tauber, Director of Town Hall Programs. Earlier this summer, the National Constitution Center hosted a conversation about the untold stories of women abolitionists, suffragists, and even soldiers during the Civil War. Our Senior Director of Content, Lana Ulrich, sat down with noted historians Tavolia Glimp of Duke University, Kate Mazur of Northwestern University, and Katherine Clinton of the University of Texas in San Antonio. These three scholars shared fascinating stories from the lives of women like Harriet Scott, Ida B. Wells, and Harriet Tubman. The event was presented in conjunction with the center's new permanent exhibit, Civil War and Reconstruction, The Battle for Freedom and Equality, which both Glimp and Mazur helped develop as part of the exhibit's advisory board. Here's Lana to get the conversation started. So I'd like to um, get into some specific stories of women that are featured in our exhibit. But before we do so, I just want to ask a very brief opening question to each of you. Um, if you could just uh, say a few things about your thoughts on the role of women during this crucial time period, both enslaved women and free women, what were the means by which they could affect change during this time period? Um, Tavoli, I guess I'll start with you at the end. Oh, <laughs> okay, I thought we were starting with um, what were the means for which women affected change? Um, so it's a big question, and um, I think since this program is, is focused on both the Civil War and Reconstruction, we can start with Reconstruction, I mean, with Civil War. So <clears throat> when I think about women and when I research and write about women in the war, I'm constantly trying to think about them where they are, um, where the war finds them, and also where they are when the war ends, which means that I have to think about plantation women, women who owned slaves quite differently from the way I think about uh, northern women who became nurses or missionaries in the South, and quite differently from poor white women um, in the mountains of North Carolina um, or poor white women in, urban, in the urban North. And so my sort of ambition has been to put these women into dialogue with each other. And so in my work, I'm trying to, to see what happens when poor white women come face to face with rich women in the war, because um, this is what happens. The war uproots people and places them in, in, in places that they have not um, been before. So when rich white women are fleeing the Union Army and run into the mountains, and they're running into territory occupied by poor white women, what does that look like and what happens? And so briefly, uh, then my goal for the war is to sort of put them in conversation with each other and figure out uh, what their ambitions are for the war and whether or not those ambitions are realized. Kate, what are your thoughts on, on some of what Tavoli has mentioned? And well, I think I'll segue from Tavoli talking about the Civil War itself to talking a little bit about Reconstruction. Um, one of the things about the Civil War that... Um, that we have to understand if we're going to understand Reconstruction is it's the war transformed so many things all across the country. It, it was a period of tremendous upheaval in the South where slavery was crumbling. Um, 
where most of the battles were fought, um, which saw you know, all of this military destruction, dislocation of people, but it also really transformed the North and it transformed what people thought was possible. And one of the central storylines of Reconstruction is that it created a moment in which it was possible to kind of rethink the foundations of the United States, right, the, the Constitution itself. Here's a crisis. It's an opportunity to um, not just wipe away slavery, which is what the 13th Amendment did, but also to set the nation on a new footing beyond that. And so um, for women who were experiencing this transformation, new kinds of roles opened up, new doors opened up. And in particular, um, you know, if you think about <clears throat> the kinds of dislocations that happened during a war, and if you think about uh, women, this is a more familiar story from, say, World War II, of women moving into roles that they might not have taken up before, whether it's um, running plantations or farms, um, moving into new kinds of work, moving into new kinds of philanthropic activities, fundraising. And so women of all different kinds had experienced a variety of new kinds of roles, and that is part of what helped them think differently about what the nation should look like in the future. So I'm sure we'll talk about um, things like women in voting rights and women in citizenship, but I think it's important to think about the ways that the war itself kind of transformed people's lives in ways that made them think, well, now let's look ahead to a different era. How could things be different now that um, this war is kind of coming to an end? Same question to you, Catherine. Well, I, I have spent a lot of time thinking about the voices of women, and I'm in agreement with my colleagues, of course, on trying to really put that into a larger framework. And historians will debate and disagree over when it happened, why it happened. But I think we all agree that in the past 25 years in particular, but the past half century, um, since the, the centenary of the Civil War, certainly the voices of women have come to the fore. And we look and see the way in which, as Kate points out, the acceleration of women seizing the opportunity. So the moment you declare a war, you have uh, several thousand women assembling in New York trying to really create what becomes the Sanitary Commission. We look at the way in which women see this as an opportunity. Is it one they welcomed? No, but it was one that they felt they had to embrace. And I'm particularly heartened by the way in which the, the reconstitution and the reformation of households is something very important in the Civil War. And looking at it as a household war has become a, a new way of looking at it. Because we know that the labor system was destroyed or attempted to be destroyed uh, in terms of the amendment and in terms of trying to transform from slavery to freedom. But we also know that the transformation of families was so important and the role of women in that transformation, asserting motherhood rights, asserting rights, because it wasn't just a system of exploiting the producers, it truly exploited the reproducers. So women, I think, had a special role in the transformation to uh, a new world, although voting rights and citizenship might be denied, they nevertheless could be part of the political economy that would transform the South uh, in many ways for good and bad, but that's something we can put into later. Sure. So let's talk about some specific stories of some specific women and, and jump off of their stories to talk about some of these other themes. Um, so let's start with Harriet Tubman. She's a well-known figure featured in our exhibit. And Catherine, I'll start with you since you wrote a great biography of Harriet Tubman. Um, can you tell us a little bit about her, her life? I think people are familiar with her work on the Underground Railroad. Uh, maybe mention something that people aren't as familiar with. Well, I do think that she was someone who believed um, in the fundamental principle that slavery was war. 
Therefore, she never really expected, uh, uh, she commented to other abolitionists that she did not expect emancipation in her own lifetime. But when war came, she certainly seized the opportunity to take her underground railroad above ground. And she really felt the need first to serve at Fortress Monroe to be a nurse, but soon the governor of, of Massachusetts sent her down to occupy South Carolina where he thought she could do more good. And the fact that she was an African-American woman who could move freely through the country and not be suspected meant that she did military operations and was involved in the Cumbie River raid. And in one night, going up in deep into the heart of Dixie, she was able to liberate 750 enslaved people, more than she had uh, in total in the decade before. So we look and see that her Civil War career, I think, it is just coming to the fore. And I'm so pleased that you put um, the biography of her written in the 1860s in your exhibit, where she is indeed carrying a rifle because she did uh, learn to tote a gun. But, but I do want to correct a lot of impressions that she did not walk around during the Underground Railroad years carrying a rifle. That would not have been. Um, so many of the folkloric images of her. So one thing is we're getting more of her career as, a, as really a military operator and someone who is very sophisticated in her approach. But I, I know too much about her and my colleagues may have other comments or insights they want to share. Sure. Or other people, I'm not sure. Kate, Tavolia? No. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we could talk either with about um, Harriet Tubman or when we talk about Harriet Jacobs about mm -hmm. um, yeah. the role mm -hmm. of African-American women who came from the North into the South. Mm -hmm. um, so here we have Harriet Ann Jacobs and Ellen Craft who have very daring escape stories from slavery. If you um, could just mention a little bit about um, Harriet's maybe escape story. Sure. Please. I mean, so Harriet Jacobs, I, you may be familiar with her narrative. It's called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. Have, it, have, you, have you heard about that book? So it was... Um, I don't actually, I sh I'm not sure about the publication history, but it came into, well, no, but I mean, when it was sort of forgotten, but it came right. into the literary canon with a kind of second wave feminist movement. It became something that's frequently now taught in both history classes and literary studies classes. It's Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, and in it she describes her life in slavery in North Carolina and her eventual escape to freedom. And... Um, it's a grueling story, parts about it, of it that uh, are in North Carolina, where she talks somewhat frankly about um, sexual exploitation of enslaved women by white men, how white men were constantly pursuing her, really difficult decisions that she made about her own sexuality because of the, the ways that white men were trying to coerce her into having sex and sexual relations with them. And she ends up hiding out in a kind of a tiny attic space for years or many, many months before she's finally able to kind of make her escape to the north. And I'm happy for my colleagues to um, add to that, but, but I was thinking, as I was kind of thinking about this panel, one thing she shares in common with Harriet Tubman is that she, um, and Tubman, and also a woman here from Philadelphia named Charlotte Fortin, are all examples of African-American women who were living in the North, um, who went South during the Civil War to participate in kind of helping in the transition from slavery to freedom. And um, so in the case of Harriet Jacobs, she ended up in Alexandria, Virginia, working with um, slaves who had escaped from Maryland and Virginia and had come into Alexandria, and it was occupied by US military forces at that point. 
And uh, Jacobs was involved in kind of hospital work and relief work, um, working with a white woman named Julia Wilbur. And there's a lot of correspondence um, regarding their friendship and also um, what was going on in Alexandria at that time. So it's pretty well documented. And it's really interesting, again, to see that this was a very multifaceted person. She um, had a lot of connections in the anti-slavery movement by the time she made it to the North, and at the same time um, was doing this Freedmen's Relief work in the South, in Alexandria. And eventually, at the, uh, later in life, she moved to Washington, DC, um, and ended up uh, there. Um, speaking of abolitionists, I wanted to touch briefly on uh, another fairly well-known figure, Harriet Beecher Stowe. We do have the first edition of Uncle Tom's Cabin on display in the exhibit on loan from the Library Company of Philadelphia. Um, and Tavolia, is there anything that you want to add about just the abolitionist movement in general and the role of women as um, abolitionists was um, writing primarily the way that they were able to communicate their abolitionist ideals or were there other methods that they were able to spread this anti-slavery um, Movement. So women abolitionists faced the same kinds of problems um, that men faced who were abolitionists. They were despised, they were hated, they were, um, had all kinds of manner of things thrown at them. They were, women especially, were not supposed to speak in public, so that was a problem. Um, but women uh, abolitionists insisted on, on um, having their voices heard. Um, we know a lot about white women abolitionists uh, in particular, and probably less about black women abolitionists with the exception of Sojourner Truth, and uh, who um, stood up not only for um, emancipation, but for women's rights. And even when um, black women abolitionists were often not allowed to join certain um, white women abolitionist organizations, they persisted, they organized their own separate organizations. And so you have this um, um, uh, interesting kind of situation where women who are anti-slavery are not all necessarily um, um, pro-equality. Uh, so women, who fought to end slavery did not necessarily believe that black people were equal. And so you see this kind of problem in the abolitionist movement in general and also within the white uh, uh, women's abolitionist movement. At the same time, sometimes they work together. I mean, you just heard, for example, you're talking about Julia Wilbur working with um, Harriet Jacobs, and so they work together at the same time. Julia Wilbur, the white woman abolitionist, is sending letters back uh, to her folk um, saying, you know, like, I really do not like Harriet Jacobs. Um, uh, why did they send her here? She's competition. Um, so even into the war, this kind of problem persists. Um, and I also would like to um, really emphasized how important it is for us to remember that abolitionists were not all, that not all abolitionists lived in the North. That the, the, the most fervent abolitionists, um, the abolitionists who had what we call, you know, like the strongest anti-slavery ground were the enslaved people themselves. Um, that they were the ones who, who uh, rose up 
that they were the ones who engaged in day-to-day -day resistance, that they were the one who became fugitives like Ellen Craft, um, who you just saw a picture of, who um, was fair-skinned enough to disguise herself as a, um, a slave-holding man, and her husband um, went with her, or, or fled with her as her servant. Um, you know, people, and she wasn't the only black woman who disguised herself to make it to freedom, as a man, that is. Um, uh, so the women, um, black women in the South who were enslaved, uh, played a huge, huge role in slavery's uh, destruction, uh, both before the war and during the war when you know, they were the ones running away to union lines. They were the ones who said, this war in the household that we've been having, we're gonna continue to have until that household is destroyed. Um, and so you have, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 300,000 women, hopefully, um, who leave slavery. And you might say, well, that's nothing. There are four million slaves in the South. Well, it's still quite significant. Um, and those who did not run uh, found ways to um, try to destroy the system. Catherine, is there anything you want to add to about um, the abolitionist movement or Harry Beecher Stowe in particular? I just wish I had her sales. That's it. <laughs> so she, I'm thinking of the book coming out and selling thousands of copies. Sorry, can you hear me now? Sorry, I'm, I apologize. There was, um, I mean, certainly a hunger for her story, but she was, as Stavoli is pointing out, telling the stories of those people that were told to her who had risked life and limb, and the entire project of, of resisting slavery often was on the backs of fugitives during the war, what they translated and called contraband. So we do have a continuum that the anti-slavery movement was resistance and fighting and fleeing, which translated into a broader war. So we can sort of make a continuum. And women's role in it, as Lavoli is pointing out, has been neglected. And now I think is coming to the fore with the recovery of these women and the exhibits, which give us and visitors their names, their faces, a bit of their story. So we get to know more about them. So another very important uh, figure I'd like to touch on is Harriet Scott. Uh, she was the wife of Dred Scott. Um, the plaintiff in the infamous Dred Scott case. Uh, most people are aware of Dred, but don't know that his wife was also a co-plaintiff. Co um, and we have Dred's uh, petition for freedom on display in the exhibit. And we also have Harriet's, which will go on display after Dred's. Uh, Tavolia, what was the significance of the Dred Scott case and what's the legacy of the case today? Well, I mean, obviously the significance is that um, the Supreme Court, um, the decision in the Supreme Court, uh, which declared that um, people of African descent um, were not citizens of the United States and could never be citizens. And so this decision uh, by Judge uh, Tani comes out of a case with Harriet um, and her husband who <clears throat> sue um, because um, they have lived in free territory and on the basis of having lived in that free territory, they claim their freedom. Now they've been moved around a lot, Harriet and, and Dred Scott, by various uh, people who claimed ownership of them. And so when they come back to Missouri, they, they sue and the case ends up in the Supreme Court. And we talk about Dred Scott more than we talk about um, his wife, Harriet. Um, who um, was um, at, at least uh, had her own case in, initially, and then the suit uh, the suits were brought together, and also uh, 
who contributed uh, immensely to their household, you know. I mean, Dred Scott, they had to make a living too, and so she was very important there. Um, but certainly um, much forgotten in history. Okay. Well, I think one thing about Harriet Scott it helps us think about a broader phenomenon, which is one of the ways that enslaved people resisted and fought against slavery, which is the phenomenon of freedom suits themselves. And there has been recently historians really unearthing these suits. Um, you know, we tend to focus, many of us focus on the Supreme Court and really big decisions like the Dred Scott decision, but actually, uh, Southern African Americans, including enslaved people or people who were claimed as slaves, were often going to court. And they often uh, filed suit for their freedom, not just in St. Louis, which is very well documented, um, but I've actually looked at some of these same kinds of suits in Washington, D.C., and, and they're, they're really all over the place. And so people were, essentially, when you filed a freedom suit, you were essentially saying that you were illegally held in bondage, which is, when you think about it, it's a little hard to wrap your mind around. I mean, the whole system is so unethical, it's so awful, so it seems like all of it should be illegal, but of course there were, in fact, legal rules around slavery, many, many, many of them. And so people would say, for example, so the Scots said, they had been in free territory, now they're back in Missouri, which is a slave state, but they still were entitled to freedom according to ways that the courts in Missouri had worked, where if you had set, even if you were claimed as a slave, if you had set foot on free territory, you could no longer be held as a slave. And if you were back in Missouri and someone said you were still their slave, you could go to court and say, no, no, I am entitled to my freedom. There were other ways, too, that people claimed freedom in freedom suits. Um, one was um, to say that you and, and possibly even uh, your ancestors were unfairly enslaved or uh, illegally enslaved because you had a white woman or another kind of free woman in your ancestry. And because slavery followed the status of the mother, so you could say, well, look, my mother was held in slavery, but actually her mother was a free woman of color or a white woman, and therefore I and my children are entitled to our freedom. And there are other ways, too, that people claimed um, freedom, but what I want to also add, in this, particularly in this context, is women often filed freedom suits. And I don't know what the numbers are. I was... Um, but, but certainly in the cases that I've looked at for the District of Columbia, I don't, you know, easily half of the freedom suits are being filed by women, often on behalf of themselves and their children, because they were so often connected with and responsible for their children that if they could successfully file a freedom suit, it wasn't just for themselves, but also for their, for their kids. And so it's one of the ways that we see um, women's legal knowledge, women's agency, women's uh, ideas about their families, that this was so important to them that they would pursue freedom suits, um, you know, very, very strongly to the point of hiring lawyers, um, being willing to risk a lot to pursue these kind of suits. So in that sense, I would want to see Harriet Scott as really special, but also really one of a part of a much larger and really important phenomenon. Both um, Harriet Tubman, when she was married, paid $5 to a lawyer to try and ascertain if her mother had been held illegally in slavery. And so she was entitled to her freedom. It's just, to me, I remember reading and saying, again, the astonishment of the sophistication of the knowledge. Yes, she was um, illiterate, but no, she was quite aware of the law. And we also can look at the way Sojourner Truth fought to have her son um, return to her because he had been illegally seized and sold. So the way in which women actively pursued this, I, I think uh, for themselves, but certainly for their families, is, is a tale. And someone, the, the Harriets certainly uh, do tell the tale. 
So uh, Tavoli and Catherine, you both mentioned Sojourner Truth. Um, and uh, she was an abolitionist, but she also was a suffragist. Uh, and I have her here with Elizabeth Cady Stanton because both she and Stanton worked uh, with Frederick Douglass uh, prior to the ratification of the 15th Amendment. But after that was ratified and women were excluded, they divorced from, from Douglass and the, and the suffrage movement was split. Um, so um, can we... Uh, Tavolia, is there anything you want to add about Sojourner Truth's work um, on the suffrage movement or just about the suffrage movement in general and the, um, you know, the outcome of what happened to it after the 15th Amendment was passed? Um, where would I start? Uh, so women, there were many women abolitionists um, who were also trying to... Um, find a way simultaneously to get um, suffrage for women. Many of these women decided, okay, we will wait um, and give and make sure that black men have the vote, the 15th Amendment. Um, some women were not happy with that decision to wait and, and, and um, um, allow black men to have the vote first. And I think that um, disagreement um, between those who were willing to say, well, we should have male suffrage across the board and those who were saying, you know, like women have to have the right to vote, it would lead to all kinds of complications and, and very disturbing battles um, in the years to come. When women, um, northern women suffragists decided that um, one of the most fruitful ways to get suffrage for women was to have a national movement. And to have a national movement, they had to have Southern women um, included. And Southern white women um, said, okay. Um, but their position was that we will fight for women's suffrage in order to destroy the black vote. Um, and so women's suffrage, the movement, um, was torn. Um, black women uh, felt, um, often felt uh, that they were ignored. And so you have major battles, not only um, uh, between Ida B. Wells, for example, and the women's suffrage. Ida B. Wells, who is born in 1863, but who becomes uh, this really fierce um, uh, anti-lynching uh, campaigner, um, and who's also a suffragist, who's a journalist, and um, and who also decides to get married. Um, and when she got married, you know, some of the white suffragists said, you know, like, you know, this is not good. You can't be a wife and a suffragist at the same time. But she, she did it. Um, and she, you know, this is a woman who um, had, when she left Memphis, she left because there was a bounty on her hand um, because she had stood up when black men uh, had been lynched, um, uh, and these men who were her friends. Um, uh, and she, after that, she became, um, uh, I would say, the, the, the foremost uh, person in this country leading the anti-lynching campaign, um, that she would you know, uh, 
And also, she was a co-founder of the NAACP, which I think is um, very important to remember about her. So I think, you know, women's suffrage, if we eventually get the right to vote, um, that we're about to celebrate the anniversary of, but um, the 100th anniversary. Uh, but it was a hard-fought campaign, not just where the enemies were, or the enemy um, was men, but what enemies, uh, women made enemies among themselves. And so the division um, really was so evident in the 1890s when someone like Frederick Douglass had been present in the antebellum movement and really pushed women to add the vote to their agenda, and white women did add the vote to their agenda, and by the 1890s, because of the Southern strategy, as it was called, which really was a white supremacy strategy, um, were willing to advocate and use the rhetoric of racism. At a time, the volume is pointing out, when um, you had uh, such violent uh, racism in the United States that you had in the peak year of lynching, a lynching every other day in America. So there was women being folded into that, and women's role in that was often very complicated. Uh, Rebecca Felton was the first woman to serve in the U.S. Senate because she had made some very striking uh, remarks as a Georgian woman about the protection of white women. So we do see the, the devolution. So one of the things we hope next year with the anniversary, we can not just tell one story, but many stories, and um, I'm particularly uh, sensitive to the way in which we have battles over rhetoric, but also battles over statues, and unfortunately, there's a lot of statue battles going on now with Sojourner Truth um, needing to have her place as such a, uh, a leader who stood up to white women, who stood up to white men, who stood up to black men, and made the point that the we, we need to frame the battle of politics, that it is intersectionality, which is a modern theory term, but I think those of us looking at the past see how sensitive everyone was during that era to the varieties of change. Who got to speak? What the platform was? Yeah. Kate, um, you've written, too, about the suffrage movement in D.C. Is there anything that you'd like to add about this, you know, conflict? I mean, let's see, what could I add? I, you know, the, in the moment, both of you sort of jumped ahead to the kind of next phase in the 1890s. In the moment of sort of the late 1860s is when a lot of the existing um, suffrage movement really blew up, really, really blew up over the question of African-American men's right to vote and the 15th Amendment in particular. And when you, when you look at how that went down, and a lot of the, it, one of the wonderful things about the web, right, is that a lot of the, the primary sources, a lot of stuff is really readily available. If you just begin to look at the things that Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who are the sort of, they really were the preeminent white women movers of that movement. They were so, um, they really thought that this moment, as we were talking about at the beginning, of tremendous upheaval of the Civil War and Reconstruction was the moment that they had to get women's right to vote. And when they were forced to wrap their mind around the idea that that was probably not gonna come to pass because the uh, Republicans were more focused on, in, the Republicans who were in power were more focused on uh, 
guaranteeing, attempting to guarantee the right to vote to African-American men um, out of the urgency that came out of emancipation and the urgency of what kind of needed to happen to secure democracy and a semblance of sort of safety and well-being for African-Americans in the South. And when they realized that that was not also going to include uh, what they called universal suffrage or suffrage voting rights for women, they allied themselves with the Democratic Party, which was extraordinarily racist at that time. They themselves, and especially Stanton, started using remarkably racist uh, rhetoric against African-American men, against Irish immigrants, against Chinese immigrants, um, basically saying things like, we cannot believe that the Protestant white women, like your Puritan mothers, are going to be denied the right to vote when all of these, you know, dregs, horrible uh, people are going to be allowed to vote. And so the, the kind of racism that they resorted to in that moment is, is deplorable. It is, it's horrible to read. And it really makes you understand. I mean, to, to, I, I actually kind of, um, I like the term intersectionality and intersectional for this purpose because it really makes you understand how um, people who are fighting for what they consider to be something that is right can go really wrong when they're considering a different axis of difference and how uh, that, I mean, that moment and then the things uh, that people, uh, an African-American uh, suffragist or uh, an abolitionist who I um, think is really amazing named Frances Harper, who would say, look, we, we're not, that is not the way we necessarily have to go. We can go in different directions or we can be, uh, we can say, look, this is where, you know, we need to have the 50 Amendment now, and then we'll try to address women's suffrage. Um, you know, so, so these kinds of understanding that where you stand will give you a different perspective and that people need to listen to one another um, is, is completely kind of evident in the worst way in that period. Well, you know, I think it just goes back to the fact that you, these women had really never been um, for equality. They had been against slavery. And so it's not a huge leap for them to be, to show their racism um, um, when they realize that this is going to be um, a moment when they, women will not get the vote. And so then it comes out that, no, well, you know, we, um, not all women, but we white women, not, and not all white women, but we white wealthy or middle-class women are better than poor white women and we're better than these immigrant women coming from Southern Europe and, and Eastern Europe and, and we're certainly better than black women. And so um, it just all comes out um, and, and then the alliance with uh, Southerners, um, sort of the culmination of. Mm -hmm. Well, um Kate, you mentioned Frances Harper, um, and you and Thavoli have both uh, written about the um, uh, the work that she and others have done uh, back then for equal treatment and public accommodations in particular. Um, is there anything else that you want to add about Frances Harper's life um, beyond just her work for voting rights? Well, I put Frances Harper um, in a category of uh, hundreds of women um, uh, in that she, as an African-American woman, she was um, uh, accustomed to and, and, and quite fed up with um, the humiliation that came with 
uh, women, black women being put in the smoking cars, the second-class cars, and not allowed to ride in the first-class cars. And so there were many women, not only in the North, but also in the South, who um, were dragged off of street cars. And um, I, you know, I've just been working on um, uh, a story about some of them, about four women in, in 1867. <laughs> Um, in South Carolina who were dragged off of streetcars. And so and, and it's important really to think about when I say this is 1867, so two years after freedom, but, and also a year after the Civil Rights Act of 1866. So um, they should have had full access to and rights to public, public accommodations, whether we're talking about skating rinks in the north or um, theaters in the South, you know, um, or streetcars, but they still had to fight for that and they were still being dragged off. And this is why black men who, when they get the vote um, and when they have power to make decisions about what will go into these constitutions that are being rewritten in the South, you know, they say we want the vote, we want land um, redistribution, we want, um, no more uh, jail fines that lead to enslavement. And we want our wives and our sisters to not be humiliated like this. And so in every one of these constitutions, um, there are clauses about public accommodations um, that uh, uh, are written into the constitutions that say that there will be no distinction on the basis of race or color or caste our previous condition, and I think that's really um, central to the story of Reconstruction that grows out of this other past. Yeah. I'll put another figure up, too, that you had mentioned, Thavolia, who did similar work, Ida Wells, um, who also fought for equal treatment and public accommodations, and uh, Catherine or Kate, if there's anything that you'd like to add um, about that work. Well, I do think women went to the fore in the, in the question of public accommodation, so that um, a young woman named Frances Rollin, who had been in the North being educated, her parents were in South Carolina. They were uh, in the Brown Society, belonging to a very elite group. Her father actually supplied the Confederate Army. But when she came down South, she was really nerved by right, and she became involved in a um, steamship case where she uh, was denied her passage uh, because she was a person of color. And she went to Martin Delaney, who was there, became in, involved with him in that she wanted to see the changes take place. He was encouraging of her to sue. She became enamored and wrote his biography and actually published it under the name of Frank Rollins. So I think for about a century, people didn't realize she was the first African-American woman historian. And she was someone who began because uh, it comes out of protest. It comes out of, uh, I have my freedom, I have my rights. We talked earlier about the women seeing lawsuits, seeing the path. And during the Reconstruction period, this was when so many women of color went to the fore to try and 
seize their rights. And we, we all know the stories of so many of these, of these women, and we're trying to get their stories out because it's so important to imagine that they're, they're lying there waiting for us, that the recovery of Frank Rollin into Francis Rollin into the Rollin sisters of South Carolina, who were really getting out the vote for um, the Reconstruction era, is an important story. What is lost, and we, we often talk about the notion of... Um, the failures of Reconstruction, but I'm just really enamored recently um, at a talk where I heard Stacey Abrams talk about the uh, the lack of, of, of language. What is a failure when you have a people coming to the fore? You have people demanding their rights. You have people organizing and creating a community, which did indeed happen. Strikes in South Carolina, uh, strikes in the north on the streetcars. So it mobilized people. Just because the government refused to enforce the law does not mean always the failure, but it is uh, the women, I think, who came to the fore. So uh, we have many Francis's and we have many... No, you have a character you want to share with us? A character? I, a character? <laughs> I mean, do you, should we move to Q&A? I don't want to usurp the moderator. No, I mean, I know you've written about Kate Brown. I well, think it's a oh, fascinating I would love story. To, I would always love to talk about her. her. Yeah. Um, I meant character in the best possible no, I know. <laughs> um, well, so... So the the connect I mean so Ida Wells before she became famous as a journalist writing about lynching um, protested discrimination on the railroad in Tennessee and she did it more than once and she filed lawsuits against the railroad company. Um, in my case, I did a lot of research on a woman named Catherine Brown or Kate Brown who uh, worked in the U.S. Senate building as the attendant to the ladies' washroom. So imagine that in the United States Senate there were women spectators who would go and watch the proceedings of the Senate and she was Kate Brown was a woman who would hand out a towel or sort of be there attending the washroom. Because she had that job, she actually knew a lot of senators, including senators who were willing to kind of stand up for her at a certain point when she got, uh, when she protested. Um, being, being kicked off a train that ran between Washington and Alexandria. So she had ridden the ladies' car from Washington to Alexandria because Washington had anti-discriminate Washington DC had anti-discrimination laws on the books and she as an African American woman bought a ticket on the ladies car rode the ladies car to Alexandria but when she got on to in Alexandria to go home they didn't have the same rules on the other side of the river and she and this security guard came and some other white man helped out and they physically threw her off the car to the point that she was severely injured the most and, and, and she, I mean, she had held on and said, I have a right to be on this car. I bought a ticket on this car. And so part of what's interesting about this story and why we know this story is because when she got back to Washington, she told the people that she knew in the United States Senate what had happened to her, and they came to her house and took her testimony. And the document containing her testimony of what happened to her is in the congressional serial set. So it's like a published document of Congress. And when I first found this, I was working on my dissertation and I sort of thought, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm following this case and I'm like, well, I wonder if I can ever find out more about her. And then I find this thing that appears to be more or less, you know, like verbatim, somebody says, well, what happened? And she says, da, 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 like for a paragraph. And then somebody says, what happened next? And she says, and so it's like this, it's really much more information than you often get of an African-American woman telling her story of what she did. Um, she sued the railroad company. She wrote legislation for Congress to pass to ameliorate the problem. She drafted legislation. She won her lawsuit against the company when 
the United States Supreme Court actually, acting as the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, said when we say that there's equality on public accommodations, the, the um, railroad company tried to say, well, we provide accommodations. They're separate but equal, literally, in 1868. And the, at this point, the Supreme Court, not acting as the Supreme Court, but ask, acting as a Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, said, no, no, like, that's not the intention, separate but equal. That is not in keeping with the intention of the law. So the case actually gets a tiny little footnote in Plessy versus Ferguson as an example of a precedent in which the court had said separate but equal is not the intention of these anti-discrimination laws. And that's Kate Brown. And one of the things that has always frustrated me, and I know a lot more about her story, is that there is no photo of her that I've ever found. And so in situations like you know, museum exhibits or other places where we want to be able to talk about her and so many other women, really, and it's so hard to figure out in some, in some places where people want illustrations. They want to see, well, what did this person look like? I want to be able to imagine them. And if there's not a photo or another kind of image, it, it sort of makes it more difficult. And so I think that's one of the challenges, too, that, um, that we face when we sort of translate this work. Um, well, we love it, but anonymous was a woman is one of our slogans. All right, well, I'd like to get to just a couple of audience questions before we close, if we can. Um, and this question, uh, maybe it's for Catherine or Savolia. Uh, it asks, did many of the women involved with the Underground Railroad later have an active involvement as spies for the union? Is that something you can comment on? You mean women who were conductors or women who were I think so. I think it means that either women who were involved in the Underground Railroad or maybe in the abolitionist movement. Well, if we were talking about women who were involved like um, Tupman as conductors, I don't think we really know how many of them uh, came back. Um, I've not seen, and maybe you all have. But we do, we do know that people like Susie King-Taylor in her reminiscences writes about the fact that the African-American women, McPherson in his early work says, they were invisible. So they often gathered information and conveyed it. But that's not, I, don't, I thought she was asking about women who had been conductors on the railroad, like Susie King-Taylor is, no, no, I, I mean, no, you I don't agree. just. Well, women who had been conductors on the railroad is sort of a, uh, you know, it's, in other words, it's a movement that's overwhelmingly portrayed as uh, male conductors. And I haven't found a lot of evidence to contradict that, although the most famous conductor is Tubman. Right. So indeed, she did serve as a spy, although she was she was given her orders by the War Department, so many years later had such a difficulty claiming her pension because she, you know, if you're a spy, you often didn't keep good records, and therefore, you know, and therefore she also had the testimony of many generals, but no surprise, it was uh, congressmen in, from the South who were protesting again and again. But, but this idea about the Underground Railroad, it was a network of sympathetics, and indeed, um, you mentioned the point about the South, and I think that, that the African-American women were conducting intelligence during that period. Yeah, I mean, spies. we just don't, we don't have uh, evidence of women who conducted slaves to freedom coming back during the war, um, except for Tubman. Tubman. Um, and, and, you know, and um, in her case, she um, fortunately um, lands in a place where... Um, women have a long history of being um, um, sort of spies and revolutionaries in the low country of South Carolina. So 
Um, I don't know of other women who did, who, who ran away or who conducted other people and then came back to fight the war. And they may be there, we just haven't found them. Mm-hmm. Well, a related question asks if uh, there are any stories of women who actually fought as male soldiers in the war. Um, do we have records of that? We'd like Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, uh, one of my favorites is a very controversial figure, Loretta Velasquez, who was born in Cuba raised in um, New Orleans, and she uh, makes the mistake of falling in love with a Yankee, someone outside of the uh, community who was an Anglo soldier, and he went out west, and she married him, had three children, but on the very eve of the war, he dies. She's left um, a widow, first with two children, then with no children as they die in the fever, and she took up a uniform, went to war as Lieutenant Henry Buford. She fought for the Confederacy, but in recent work, there's been some suggestion that during incarceration, she may have indeed traded information to the Union. So um, women like Loretta, um, in her early, she wrote an autobiography. And I, I do have in my book the title, but if I read it, we wouldn't get any more questions. It's like a paragraph long title. But the woman in battle was what she put forward. And she said, oh, if I was a man, only a man. And then she acted on it. We have um, verification of women who did that in a wonderful book called They Fought Like Demons, which does give us the documented cases of women. And many of them came back and applied for pensions, and that's how we know, because the pension records of the union uh, tell us about them. Um, but it's quite clear that there were women at every level. There were there were lieutenants, there was um, the corporal who used to be very close to his um, attendant, who um, then gave birth to a baby, and that let, let him out of the army. And so there are, you know, there are many, many cases like this, and they're coming to the fore. I think it's uh, interesting to see that some women were accompanying sweethearts, some were accompanying brothers, um, some were going independently, like Emma Edmonds, who fought very valiantly um, and later wrote about her exploits. So we do have, uh, I think, wonderful evidence. It is, as as the volume says, you know, we, we only have a few, but they're very emblematic, and I think they take us to the present where we see these issues that women, many of these women were quite angry at the notion that they, being feminine, could not, um, uh, could, could not see the elephant and go into combat, but quite clearly, even though the generals would say, no women in camp, all should be removed, and it was um, two women's bodies found uh, among the dead soldiers in the Red River campaign. So we do have more and more evidence coming to the fore. Although I will say that the other great battle is um, among the reenactors, how they accept or fail to accept the women who, uh, who, who did don a uniform, and many perform very bravely. Well, we are almost out of time, but I just want to ask one quick closing question to each of you. Uh, Tavoli, I'll start with you. Uh, are there any brief stories that we haven't mentioned that are really important for us to just at least mention by name? And why is it important for us to understand these stories uh, for our history and for going forward? I can't think of any one story that I would um, privilege more than others, and um, I can think of many women who fought during the war, who, women who fought for the wrong thing, women who fought for the right thing, and 
um, women who um, did nothing, who just wanted their husbands to come home. Um, and I'm really interested less in a name or a story, even though I've written about women like Rose, uh, a black woman in South Carolina who led um, her son and other men in battle against Confederate scouts um, and who became the subject of much gossip um, in South Carolina. And eventually uh, it was decided that she had to be uh, treated as a um, combatant and so the Confederate um, scouts went after her and her, um, her army. Um, they hanged her and left her on the field of battle. Um, they killed her son and many other, others of the men that she led. So we have those stories, but I want to, to put out and before us uh, a sort of a a story of women from the bottom, but also a kind of collective story, um, so that it's, when I think about poor white women, there's no one in particular that I want to think about, but I want to think about what it was like for women who had never had much of anything. Um, and the war comes, and they're on the Confederate side, but they're not privileged. Um, and so they have to um, scrounge, they, they go and they steal, um, they um, riot. And what's really interesting is that when the war ends and the um, Confederate uh, um, men come back into power temporarily, one of the first things that they do is to pass a law saying that these poor white women who rioted would be pardoned. They would not be uh, tried um, for these crimes that they had committed. And so I'm interested in them and, and you know, how they make it through. I'm interested in, in how they see white women uh, who are rich. I'm interested in, in how uh, we tell the story of, um, as I said at the beginning, of black women and poor white women forming alliances, which they do form because they're both um, uh, in opposition to plantation mistresses. Um, and when we get to the uh, Reconstruction period, I'm really interested in telling a story of women, um, of black women who, though, though they couldn't vote, who were there at mass meetings at the churches and in the galleries and who were saying to black men and white Republicans who were elected uh, as delegates um, and as representatives, you know, if you don't do this, you're going to be in trouble. You have to come home um, at night. So, you know, they were pushing men to, to, to adopt the most radical um, proposals. And so this, this is a collective story of women um, of different races and classes that we have to tell. Kate, um, closing thoughts and why is it important for us to learn these stories? Well, the question makes me think about a time that I was teaching U.S. women's history, and there was a student who had this moment, and I actually cannot exactly remember what we were talking about in class, but she had this moment of sort of epiphany of saying, okay, so when you, when you look at women's history, because almost by default for most of history, you can't be talking about legislators you know, politicians, Supreme Court, like generals, like most of the 
people who get most of the attention in history are not women, ever, right? And so, and a lot of times if you're talking about women in history, you're talking about things like your everyday life, a household, um, power relations in families, um, how people take care of children, how people balance um, you know, aspirations in the public world with their aspirations in their private lives. And these are the kinds of things that women's history sort of directs us to. And so this student sort of said, um, wait, like this is making me think that at every minute of every day, we're all living in history. And it was kind of like, yeah, you know, yes. And if, if that is part of what studying the history of women in particular can direct our attention to, this notion that actually all of the things that we do have a history, all of the kinds of, you know, relationships that we have, the opportunities that we have and don't have, all of these things are grounded in history. They're shaped by history. Um, and so I think there's something about looking at women at whatever period of time, certainly in this period, that, may, that take us into a different terrain of history um, that is really Really important, um, that really is almost like what is most important, not just in women's lives, but in everybody's lives. Catherine, the last words to you. Why is it important for everyone to learn these stories? Well, I, I, although I'm very empathetic to Thavolia's collective project, and I, I, I welcome people to it, I uh, became derailed into and maybe deranged into biography. So I welcome the collective project, but but I feel also the kind of biographies that are being done, particularly um, by uh, women scholars, often frame it in a larger uh, portrait. So I, I do see that as really important. And I will say through looking at someone like Harriet Tubman and her disabilities and looking at Mary Lincoln and the way in which she was framed as a woman of madness, you know, led me into my current project, which, um, as you know, I discovered there were white men fighting in the Civil War. And this is a great <laughs> revelation to me um, after my many years. And so, you know, I'm working on madness and Union soldiers, but also I'm working on the way in which these questions, you know, how amazing is it that we're in the 21st century and American soldiers have gone through so many wars. And I live in San Antonio, the military city, and it occurs to me in everyday life. Back to case what you look around and you look and see that the Civil War is not a dead relic of the past, nor is Reconstruction. And as we approach the sesquicentennial, we have to think about ways in which we can reconstruct the past, make it accessible. And I think that's why all of us are storytellers, but especially welcome places like the Constitution Center, where they put on display these, these wonderful images and wonderful scraps. And I will say, we all want photos, maybe, but we do have uh, bringing to life through words and images and conjuring. And I think that kind of new approach to history is one that we all welcome. Tell the story, however, get the word out, get the voices out. So thank you for giving well, us the opportunity. I just want to say, Catherine, of course, biography is really important, and I love your biographies in particular. Um, so I wasn't trying to say that, you know, we shouldn't have those, but as a, a kind of um, maybe a corrective, because when we do tell women's stories, we tend to tell them in biographies, and um, men can represent the whole world, but women have to represent a household or, you know, so um, I'm for women representing the whole world. Uh, <laughs>
This conversation was presented in partnership with Vision 2020's initiative, Women 100, a national celebration of American women. This episode was edited by Greg Sheckler and produced by me, Tanea Tauber, and Jackie McDermott. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber. 